0: Hello everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I want to take a moment to let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community. This week our speaker is Mark Peters, and he is continuing our series titled Rooted, and Mark is the district superintendent of the Canadian Pacific District, which is in our denomination, the Alliance Canada. And before serving in this role, Mark served as a pastor for a number of years here in Calgary and then on the West Coast. We're excited to have Mark join with us this week. If you're not aware, we do run a free community tutoring program on site on Wednesdays and Thursdays, and we currently need more help. So if you have a background in tutoring or know somebody who does, feel free to pass on the email to reach us at tutoring at southviewchurch.com. The best way to know what's going on at southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint and you can find a link to our viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast or you can go on realm and join the group southview family updates and that will make sure you're always getting the weekly viewpoint in your inbox and if you're new with us here in this digital space we would love to hear from you you can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together.
1: everyone. Some of the worship team were holding their breath and praying that my flight would land in time. My flight was delayed by three hours coming out of Vancouver, and I can honestly say I have never driven so fast on the Deerfoot in my entire life. I fully deserve multiple speeding tickets, but I'm here. As, as was said, my name is Mark, and I have so many fond memories of living And pastoring here in Calgary, while I was here those nine years, I experienced so much of the Lord's goodness and transformation. Calgary is a wonderful city. It's a great place to pastor. And speaking of great places to pastor, I have heard so much good about this church, Southview. I can see some good friends over there, my good friend John Nichols. Um, I've been praying for you as a church for months particularly in this season of transition as you're praying for who God might bring to be your new lead pastor. In case you're wondering, I'm not among the candidates, so I'm just, I'm just here to preach, but I am praying that God in his goodness and mercy will bring you just the right person Over the next couple days, I'm in meetings at the uh, the WCD, the Western Canadian District Office. I'm in licensing interviews at Ambrose. And so it was with great pleasure that I accepted the invitation to come and to join in the preaching series you've been involved in called Rooted. I trust that what I bring to you tonight will complement what you've already received. As many of you know, Southview Church is connected to a larger family of churches known as the Alliance Canada, and in the Alliance Canada, we regularly speak of Jesus as being Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. In a shorthand way, we call this the fourfold gospel, and it it was never intended to be a comprehensive Christology. Instead, it is our way of proclaiming the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And to make this more personal, what I want to say to you tonight is that Jesus is sufficient for you, for every need, for every situation that you find yourself in. And so tonight, I want to speak about one aspect of Jesus's work, namely sanctification. In its most basic sense, to sanctify something or someone is to set it apart for a sacred purpose. And so it would be right and good for me to say that you, Southview Church, you have been sanctified. You've been chosen. You've been called. You've been set apart for God's purposes in Calgary and beyond. And so the question is, what have we been set apart for? To be made holy? To join in God's kingdom purposes? Well, yes, of course, to both, but these are more the results of sanctification as opposed to its primary purpose. Sanctification is about drawing us into an ever-deepening communion with the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. Our denominational founder, A.B. Simpson, writes, sanctification is not a process of teaching or even the formation of character, but it is acquaintance with a person an intimate union and fellowship with him so that he actually comes into our being and becomes the source and strength of our very life, reliving his own life in us and we falling into step with his will, his plan, and all his perfect, perfect life. In part, this is what we mean denominationally when we speak about being Christ-centered. We're talking about union with Jesus. And our experience of this communion with Jesus is deepened by a fundamental posture. So I'm going to invite whoever's operating the screens to put the next slide up in front of you. And as you look at this picture, don't say anything out loud, but I just want you to think quickly about what this image evokes. I can probably guess And I can promise you that I'm going to take this in a different direction than you're thinking right now. Listen to this. Don't be such a baby. You ever heard that phrase before? Maybe you've said it to a person or two. Now, ironically, these words are never actually directed towards a baby, right? Babies are what they are. They can't help the stage that they're in. And so what do we mean when we use this phrase? What we mean, I think, is, grow up, or stop complaining, or don't be so self-absorbed. Look beyond yourself. Now, the truth is that a baby lives with an incredibly limited perspective. They're almost entirely self-absorbed. Babies know very little beyond their immediate needs. They know when they're cold or wet or hungry or tired. Awareness is something that grows as a child develops. And when raised in a healthy environment, a baby begins to perceive the other slowly, often beginning with its own mother. They become aware of of the feelings of warmth and safety and love. They begin to perceive a smiling face or soothing words and familiar smells. For those of you who are parents or grandparents, you know that the moment a child begins to crawl and then walk, they immediately become a danger to themselves. They can fall down the stairs, they can touch something hot or dart into a busy street, and it's about this time that they regularly hear the word no in all of its many forms. Don't touch that, stop doing that, you can't have that, no. No one likes to be told no, but especially a child. Children want what they want, and because their awareness is underdeveloped, they don't understand how hearing a no might actually be a good thing. Thankfully, as we grow, awareness grows with us, awareness of self, others, and God, but the two-year-old in every single one of us remains through adulthood. While we may grow in our awareness of God and others, it's difficult for every one of us to shed our preoccupation with ourselves. And so we say things like, what about me? When's it my turn? It's not fair. David Benner writes, in each of us, there lives a two-year-old with clenched fists, gritted teeth, and defiance blazing in his or her eyes. We only differ in terms of how much life this two-year-old still has and how she or he expresses this vigor. Benner goes on to tell the story of of, of a boy and his mother. This boy was wild with energy, and he was tearing up all through the house, Jumping off the furniture, tormenting his younger brother, driving his mother to the limits of patience. She told him repeatedly to stop running. He refused to listen. Finally, she took him by the arms. She forced him to sit down on the ground and told him to be still. And there on the ground, this little boy crossed his arms and he said to his mother, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Our inner two-year-old is often just beneath the surface of our life. The older we get, the better we get at disguising our defiance. A stubborn pursuit of our own agenda is a major barrier to experiencing union with Jesus. We cannot receive what God has for us when we stand before him with clenched fists. A.B. Simpson, like many, many others before him, was convinced that surrender or yieldedness was the fundamental posture and spiritual practice in the spiritual life. Following Jesus requires a surrendering, a trusting, a yielding. And so tonight, as I speak about the yielded life, my prayer is that Jesus will be present to each of you here tonight to reveal through his spirit What it is he's asking you to surrender or yield to his purpose and way. So if you have a Bible here with you tonight, let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 32. If you don't have a Bible, the text will be on the screen in a a short while. This text features the patriarch, Jacob. Jacob had a lot on the line in Genesis 32. He had a lot to lose If you know the story, you know that he had a twin brother named Esau. And Jacob had made a practice of tricking, deceiving, manipulating his brother to get what he had. First, his brother's birthright, then stealing his father's blessing. And with his twin brother spitting mad, Jacob escaped with his life to a far-off country. And he lived there a long time. Married a couple women, had a pile of children, grew Uh, What amounts to a fortune. But Jacob had spent the entirety of his life using deceit and manipulation to get ahead. And when God said to Jacob, It's time to go back to the land of promise, Jacob returned and he got word that his brother Esau was coming to greet him with a massive army. And Jacob was afraid. And all of us here tonight know what it feels like to be afraid. Some of us resist God because we're rebellious. We just want to do our own thing. Others of us resist God because there's this driving impulse of fear within us. Fear, some of you might know, causes a physiological reaction in our bodies. The amygdala, which is a part of our brain, alerts our nervous system, releasing stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. When we're afraid, these these stress hormones even change the flow of our blood away from our heart to our major muscle groups. Your body is preparing itself to run or to fight. And some parts of your brain are revving right up. Others are shutting down like the cerebral cortex. Sadly, this is the part of the brain that exercises reasoning and judgment, which is to say, when you're afraid, typically you don't think clearly and you can't make good decisions. When we're afraid, we find it especially difficult to trust anyone else even god god had plans to make jacob a blessing to the entire world but first jacob had to die to deceit and manipulation jacob needed to learn yieldedness to god and so with that introduction let me read for you now genesis 32 beginning at verse 9 then jacob prayed o god of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So here we have Jacob praying, which is typically a good thing. But Jacob wasn't quite ready to trust God. And what follows in the text makes it plain this is the case. He stayed up all night devising a strategic plan. He would send his servants and gifts and wives and children on ahead of him, hoping to pacify Esau so that when they met face-to-face, Esau wouldn't take him out. Picking up the story, verse 20. For Jacob thought, I will pacify Esau with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. Verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for its daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. This is classic Jacob. He'd been doing it his entire life, always seeking an advantage. Verse 27, the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answers. You probably have a little textual note in your Bible that says, Jacob's name means one who grasps the heel. It's a figurative way of saying one who uses deception, manipulation, and control to get what they want or need. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, meaning one who struggles with God because you've struggled with God and with humans and have come through it. Verse 30. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. When we find ourselves wrestling with God often, we don't escape without being changed in some way. Jacob limping, us limping, it's a part of what happens when we yield. We know that God asked Jacob to yield. I wonder, where might the Holy Spirit being ask, asking you to yield your will and purpose to align with his? There is a significant difference, I think, between yielding against our will to a power greater than our own and freely choosing to yield. And of course, the yieldedness that God seeks in us is characterized by our trust in him. And this trust is only possible if we have an ongoing encounter of the Father's love. I want to invite you just for a few moments to engage with me in a brief thought exercise. I want you to imagine God turning his gaze upon you. Answer me this, what do you suppose God feels when he looks at you? David Benner writes, when I ask people this question, surprising number of people, and by people he means Christians, a surprising number of Christians say the first thing they assume God feels is disappointment. Others assume that God feels anger. In both cases, these people are convinced that it's their sin that first catches God's attention. He continues think for a moment about how Christ's following develops if you assume that God looks at you with disgust, disappointment, frustration, or anger. I'll tell you what will happen. You will live your life in fear, striving to earn God's approval. Brothers and sisters, you are in Christ. And Christ is in you. But the deeper life requires a surrender that often feels dangerous to us. An ongoing encounter with God's love is the only thing that makes this yielded life possible. So here's the question. In this current season of your life, do you know and feel God's love? For much of my life, I was a slave to perfection and performance. My mom loved to tell the story of me in grade one. Whenever I would get an assignment back, if there was a hint of red on it, a red X, circle or underline, I would burst into tears. But that was just the beginning for me. It entered into every dimension of my life, from school to sports to relationships, I had this inner drive to always be the best. And this desire drove me to achieve some small measure of success. But the day came when serious cracks began to show up in my life. At the time I was at First Alliance, I was being given more and more opportunity and responsibility. I was completing a master's degree. My son had just been born, still working full time. And I began to become aware of things in my heart that I'd never really seen before. Pride deep-seated pride, anger just beneath the surface, selfishness. I was overwhelmed by an internal pressure to perform, to be great, but I felt like a juggler who had about three too many balls in the air And you're moving as fast as you can, just hoping that the whole thing isn't going to crash to the ground. And so as I began to notice things in me that had not been transformed, I did what I had done the rest of my life. I doubled down. I tried harder. I threw myself into my work. I intensified a strict regimen of spiritual disciplines to address pride, anger, selfishness. Looking back, I can now see that what I was trying to do was sanctify myself. I wanted to be the kind of person that God would approve of. But no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't conquer what was in my heart. And I went through a time where I really struggled to be alone with God because I envisioned God perpetually frustrated with me. One November, Naomi and I, my wife and I, were at the Western Canadian District Prayer Retreat out in Banff. And in one particular session, right before the speaker got up to teach, a video was played for us. Someone had taken clips from the Jesus movie. Some of you have probably seen that, just a depiction of of his life taken from the Gospels. And they'd taken these clips and they'd said it to Celine Dion's, because you loved me. Some of you may know this song, super famous a long time ago. For all those times you stood by me, for all the truth you made me see, for all the joy you brought to my life, for all the wrong that you may write, for every dream you made come true, for all the love I found in you, I'm everything I am because you loved me. And I suspect there were probably any number of people in the room who were moved to tears by this presentation, but I was not one of them. As soon as the song started to play, the inner cynic in me came alive and instantly I began to mock inwardly. What a waste of time. Celine Dion is obviously not singing about God's love. This is sappy, this is ridiculous. But mid rant, I was captured by what I saw unfolding on the screen. In one of the first scenes, Jesus was at the Jordan River being baptized. And as we put under the water, he came back up, he threw his hands up to heaven, and he had this big, beautiful, beaming smile. And the thought hit me like a hammer I've never thought of God smiling before. Why would he? There's a lot to do, there's a world to save, there's sin. To conquer, I could understand how God might be serious, but I couldn't fathom his smile. And as the video rolled on, there it was again and again. Parents, bringing little children up to Jesus. He put them on his knee and blessed them or swing them up in the air, smiling the whole time. Or the man who couldn't see, Jesus puts his hands on his eyes. The man instantly has vision. He begins to dance. Jesus dances with him again. This smile, it was so disturbing. I couldn't concentrate. After the video was done, the speaker got up to preach. I don't remember a single thing the speaker said. Then it was time for worship leading to the Lord's table. Before I knew it, people were streaming forward to receive bread and cup, and I was glued to my seat, unable to break free of the image of Jesus smiling. And as I sat there in my chair, God gave me a vision, broken into two scenes. In the first, I was in a classroom. There was a teacher at her desk, dark and shadowy. I was behind her, looking over her shoulder. She didn't know I was there. But I saw that the exam she was marking was mine. And she had this red pencil in hand. Big X's circling, underlining. I could feel anxiety rising in me. I'd done the best I could, and it wasn't nearly enough. And then the scene changed. I found myself in a living room. Observing a little toddler just beginning to take their first steps. Have all of you had a chance to see a child take their first steps? Just a show of hands. Okay, lots of you. It's incredible, isn't it? But in the vision, my internal reaction to the child's attempts revealed just how broken I had become. As the child was attempting to walk, I was saying to myself, this child is pathetic. Look at him. He's never going to get it. He's never going to walk. He's constantly falling on his face. And then my gaze lifted across the room and I saw the boy's parents and their reaction was the polar opposite of mine. Their hands were out. They were lavishing praise on their son and they were saying, you're doing it. You're walking. And they were smiling just like Jesus had been in the video. And then the Holy Spirit said to me, Mark, for too long, you have compared me to an exacting teacher. I am not like that. I am like those parents. And whether you walk or stumble, Mark, I take great delight in you. And I broke down and I wept. Our personal brokenness affects the way we see and experience God. Sometimes God needs to heal our sight before we can see him as he really is and our broken ways of seeing god affects the way we see ourselves and interact with the people all around us i don't think i'm exaggerating when i exaggerating when i say there is nothing more important than knowing and feeling god's love nothing Without this as our foundation, unwittingly, every relationship, including our relationship to Christian ministry even, becomes a vehicle to meet our own needs for love. And when our output becomes the place we look to in order to feel loved, affirmed, important, successful, we become a danger to ourselves and to everyone else. In his book, Ministry in the image of God, Stephen Siemens writes, the Father's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and communicates to us the Father's approval and delight. Too often, persons, pastors, enter into ministry without this proper foundation firmly established. Consequently, they must make their achievement, their work for God, the foundation of their ministry, rather than their acceptance and approval by God, wanting to do something in order to be someone. Have any of you ever thought of yourselves like that? You have to do something in order to be someone before God. Apart from an ongoing encounter with divine love, we may strive to please God, but we will never trust him. Simpson writes, I do not think Christ comes into you in all his fullness until you open every door and let him in. Until you make a complete surrender of your whole being, give him the key and bid him welcome to be not only the guest, but to be the master, to manage the house and all of your life. This is what we mean when we talk of a higher, deeper Christian life. Brothers and sisters, none of us falls into this posture of yieldedness. It's a posture that each of us must choose. We choose to trust God with the things that are most important in life, the things we're most afraid of, the things we most want to control. And the reason we choose to trust God is because in the end, we're surrendering to the one who is himself, love. And so we pray with the hymn writer, oh, for grace to trust him more. One last quote. We must make an entire surrender to him, in everything we must give ourselves to him thoroughly, definitively, and unconditionally. We must always remember that on that day and on that hour, we gave ourselves fully to Christ, he became entirely ours. People of God, are you ready to yield? What is it that you're holding on to that God's asking you to extend and exchange? For this communion, this peace, this strength and wisdom that resides in him. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me as I pray. Father, we give you thanks for the gifts of your son, the Lord Jesus, and the ever-present, indwelling Holy Spirit. These gifts that keep us united to you allow us to have an encounter with divine love. As it says in First John, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life on the cross for us. And so again, today, Father, we received this gift. And I pray, Holy Spirit, even now that you might call to mind those situations, those desires, those relationships, whatever it might be, that we are holding on to, preventing us from experiencing a fuller union, a greater measure of strength and wisdom and peace. Lord, we pray in this moment for this divine exchange, our sin for your wholeness, our weakness for your strength, our inability to discern for your wisdom. All of these things, Lord, we seek and we pray for the grace to surrender that which stands in the way. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because you first loved us and we pray for the grace to trust you more. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Tonight, we are going to participate in a holy meal that has been referred to throughout the centuries as the Lord's Supper. And I want to suggest that this holy meal is best understood when we set it in the context of all of the other meals that Jesus shared with friends and followers and outcasts and enemies While people didn't know it at the time, every person who shared a meal with Jesus was eating in the presence of God. Do you remember the meal that Jesus shared with Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector from Jericho? Zacchaeus didn't have a lot of friends. He was considered a a cheat. He was treated like an outcast. He was thought of so poorly that when Jesus decided to have a meal with him, people spoke about Jesus entering his house, they muttered, saying to one another, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And at the last supper, Jesus dined with disciples who in a matter of hours would either betray, deny, or abandon him. But knowing all of this, Jesus said to these disciples, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. More than any other meal, the Last Supper was an act of generous, loving welcome. My question for you is, when you think about God and this table, is this the image that comes to your mind? A smiling Jesus, a loving, generous welcome. Your place at the table and in God's family has been secured By the Lord Jesus Himself, His death, resurrection, and ascension. Upon confession of faith in Christ, all of us are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and His presence among us and in us is evidence of the acceptance we've received. And so, Sunday by Sunday, every time this meal is laid out, we run to this table, for it's a table of grace. And we ask for the mercy and healing and wisdom that we need. And what all of us discover is that God's supply is greater than all of our our, our collective need. We yield to him because he's trustworthy and true and loving and kind. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks for it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. At this time, I want to invite you to take the bread that you received as you came in. And we'll wait for just a moment until we're all ready. The body of Christ, broken for you. Let us eat together with thanksgiving. In the same way, after dinner, Jesus took a cup. And with thanksgiving, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of many. Drink, this is for you. And so tonight, let's take what we've been given. And as we drink together tonight, I want you to remember that we feast on Christ. We drink in Christ, in our hearts by faith. And so whatever your need is tonight, as you drink, Christ is sufficient for you. Let's drink together. Hmm. Praise be to God. As I conclude tonight, it's a privilege to speak a final word of blessing. And so I don't know how charismatic you are as a church, but if you're comfortable, can I invite you just to hold out your hands? It's both a posture of yieldedness and surrender, but it's also a posture about receiving. And so receive the blessing I now pronounce. May the love of God the Father and the peace of Christ the Son, and the joy of the Holy Spirit be with you and those you love. Amen and amen. The Lord bless you.